Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. Today I'm talking with Matt Zarella. He's the force behind the new documentary movie Search Dog. So Matt, can you tell my listeners something about yourself? Well, I don't want to bore anybody, but um, uh, my canine career started in uh, 1991. I had had about a year on the state police at the time, the uh, the Rhode Island State Police, and uh, I had been trying to get a canine program started to some degree uh, as a young trooper, but uh, we didn't have one, and there was no intention in starting one, so I started off much like a, a volunteer does. Uh, actually, I was a volunteer. You know, I hired a retired uh, Connecticut State Trooper Andy Redman uh, as a as a private trainer, and I used to go see him once a week, sometimes once a month. You know, uh, for a period of oh a year anyway to get my first dog started, which was my own pet. He was a, a Great Swiss Mountain Dog named Hannibal, and. Uh, we began our career shortly after our first certification in Wilderness Search, where we had a missing person here in Rhode Island uh, late in September 1992, uh, a young boy that went missing for two days. And we successfully located him, which, of course, made front-page news here, and state police uh, looked at that and said, you know, we need to we need to see about getting something started after all. The kid may have something here. and. We had uh, we had the opportunity to get the program going shortly after that, and you know it was a piecemeal type of of uh, situation, like a lot of people are familiar with, you know, in the volunteer sector. I mean, I wasn't officially a, a canine handler for the state police, but uh, it began happening slowly after that that find was uh, was made public, and uh, you know it, it took my whole career really to develop the canine program that I had always dreamed of, but it did happen. And, uh, you know, I found myself at 25 years on the job facing retirement, but looking at a, you know, a canine unit that was uh, running full-time uh, with uh, 18 canine teams with all types of, of disciplines to include um, search and rescue, human maze detection, arson, uh, computer device detection, uh, patrol, narcotics, uh, you know, we had just about everything, uh, explosives, and we had a number of troopers in each discipline working, working dogs from all, all over the country. So it was, uh, it was in short, it was a great career. It took me uh, to many different places around the country, different parts of the world, uh, which I was honored and, and fortunate enough to, to go on. And it gave me an opportunity, most of all, to help, you know, people in a, a field that uh, otherwise... You know, there may have not been technical aspects or assets to to make up for what a dog can do. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the movie first, and as I understand, it's just been aired at a film festival. Um, whose idea yeah. was it to make the movie? Sure. The uh, you know the film started uh, by a producer, a local producer from the University of Rhode Island. 
Uh, her name is Mary Healy Jamiel, and uh, Mary is a, a wonderful person, very motivated, uh, loves animals, has a real passion for for, uh, for rescue dogs, and uh, she had come to the she had come to me uh, with an idea. She wanted to do some research. You know, maybe she would do something on the study of search dogs and how they're trained. And she had received permission through the chain of command, as as many. Um, PR demonstrations that I've done before or lectures or uh, public appearances, you know, are done. And she was just another one of those folks that wanted to take a look at what we do. So I didn't have too much of a, of a problem bringing her in to, uh, to watch our trainings. But as the, as the trainings progressed, as she began to see what we do, uh, not only in on the law enforcement side, but I was also connected with the Rhode Island USAR team at that time, the Urban Search and Rescue team. And now this is going back six years from from this date uh and she was fascinated with how disaster dogs were trained and uh, the volunteers that i worked with to uh you know to to complete a team and to achieve the uh the the level that we were looking for in our dogs the um the type two and type one level of training that we were we were trying to achieve, she was fascinated by that. And so between everything she had seen on the law enforcement side as well as the, the disaster training with the volunteers, she thought there was far more here than just a study but actually a story. And she began to to look into some of the backgrounds of us and uh, really became um, fascinated with the way I started out and how you know I had so little support in the beginning uh, and a lot of negative energy, you know, working against me, trying to get a program started here in the state and seeing what what she was looking at now, you know, in 2008 maybe, or 2009, when she started the uh, the research, uh, it was, it was uh, quite a difference. And she wanted to know how that happened, you know, how did you get to this point? And so... Uh, what started out as a little a little study project actually became a film. She had numerous terabytes of footage and all sorts of interviews, and uh, she was allowed to go on actual call-outs with us. You know, I'd call her on the way out at 12 o'clock at night to a missing person search or if we were going on a drowning case or even a criminal case, uh, you know, with some some level of discretion that uh, she was allowed to come on some of those cases and um, and she was given given some access to uh to film some of those c- c- scenarios that we were involved in and uh, you know it began to uh it began to to turn into quite uh, quite the project yeah so this actually is a long time in the making how long um how long ago did you did you start working with mary well it was uh, it was every bit of 6 years ago uh, you know, I, we didn't know it would take six years. <laughs> you know, the project was really just her and some of her her handpicked students from the University of Rhode Island that were helping her out. She had no staff, had no real budget, um, so she, you know, it was it was going to take a long time for those reasons, but also because she wanted to show change. Uh, part of being a documentary filmmaker, I've learned, is to show change. You don't want to do everything in six months and call it. A documentary, you know, she wanted to show over the course of of time how uh, people progress, how the dogs progressed, how things change in the in the field. I mean, there are dogs that have, were in that film that are now dead. You know, unfortunately, are not are not going to be around. Uh, 
for the handlers to enjoy, you know, whatever publicity they they receive or accolades they receive with with those dogs. Those dogs are passed on. Mm-hmm. So when you talked about budget, and it was obviously a lot less than you would spend on a Hollywood blockbuster, but um, do you have any idea what the budget was and how did you raise money for the film? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, doing this as part of, my jo- as part of my job, I was really not involved in how she would achieve those goals. Uh, and I couldn't be. You know, it was uh, it was not my my job as a state trooper to help make a movie. I mean, I did this not as an actor, but as uh, I was a role player, but, uh, you know, as... Uh, as part of my everyday duties and those that worked with me it was the same thing. So, you know, she got, she didn't get to do retakes or do overs. It was, uh, it was what it was, which, which made it so valuable. Uh, she went on a Kickstarter campaign and raised, I think $70,000 or so to help finish the film. But a lot of it came out of her own pocket. Uh, in the beginning, I know the university supported her to some degree with, uh, with some of the equipment she needed. Uh, because it was as a tenured professor, you know, she was uh, doing this as a, as a project for the school as well. Um, and her students were learning uh, in, as as they partook in, in helping film this project. So it kind of encompassed a much larger um, aspect of talents than, uh, of raw talent, really, than hiring all, all these professionals. Although she did have to hire some uh, professional camera crews uh, usually uh, one or two uh, uh, over the course of time to come in and do some of the more uh, specialized shoot, shooting or what they hoped would be a good shoot. You know, as I said, it had to be had to be realistic and everything had to be. They just had to have those people there at the right place at the right time. Yeah, which also took, I guess with, with dogs, you just never know what they're going to do. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah, you absolutely don't. But that that was the great thing about it because you just never know what's going to happen. You can't you can't make it up. You know, and I, it was uh, and it made for some good fun too, because you know at times where we were already in a stressful situation, and now I had to get, you know, I had to explain to those on scene why you know there was a, a woman here with a camera. Um, and would it be okay if you allowed her to have access to the search area? I mean, yes, I was there, but that, that didn't mean I had full vetted access to uh, to have her film people. You know, she had to get releases, and people had to agree, you know, that they could be their faces could be used in film, and some some couldn't over time because some of the detectives involved had later moved on to other aspects of career, and some of it required undercover work so they couldn't be shown and that and some great footage had had to be edited out you know as a result of that but that's part of the business so was the entire movie filmed in rhode island or did you go anyplace else for the filming no she uh she followed us to different parts of the northeast uh, during the time she was filming we had made trips to uh, to new york state um, different parts of new england uh, but she also had uh, footage that uh, verte footage that I had uh, saved over the years of different cases I was on, uh, in particular Vietnam. When I when I went to Vietnam in 2003 to assist the United States military looking for remains of uh, of servicemen that had not returned, uh, I had documented that, and uh, as simply as a matter of of my own my own history. Uh, you know, there was, I had no idea it would ever end up in something like this, but because she was doing this documentary and would never have the opportunity to go there uh, with me, 
the footage became very valuable. I also kept a diary while I was there, uh, a video recorded diary as to what we were experiencing. But my uh, comrades uh, on the team I was assigned to were going through what we were trying to achieve, the, uh, the difficulties the dogs were having in the heat and all the other aspects that people wouldn't even realize were that would affect us uh, i was documenting all that and so some of that made it into the film because it was so uh, so rare mm-hmm. so was there any one biggest challenge that you think you faced in making the movie uh well the challenge wasn't so much for me as it was for her to get to film it it's a very difficult type of of um of event to film because you know you're dealing with dogs you don't know what's going to happen next uh you know she had no control over what i was doing uh, or any idea of what what to anticipate you know she wasn't able to say hey stop before you do that you know can you move this way a little bit the light's better that way <laughs> it she just had to take whatever she got you know wherever she was at the time and deal with it and um and that was the real challenge i think uh, for me it was just a matter of you know knowing she was back there somewhere, making sure she was safe, and and then trying to concentrate on on the task at hand. Um, you know that was that's always difficult, but I I had been used to that uh, just by virtue of the media the media uh, uh, attention that dog handlers get uh, in this state, especially when I first started. They were always filming the dogs and from a distance though, uh, mm-hmm. and so you, you kind of get used to them uh, them being there. But uh, but in her case, you know, knowing that it was for a, a better cause, you know, down the line, because at this point, you know, we knew that this was going to eventually turn into some kind of a film. Um, no idea it would end up at the Palm Springs Film Festival and a, and a highly uh, publicized uh, special event like that. But we knew it would end up somewhere because the state police wanted to see it done before um, it got anywhere. Publicly, they wanted to be able to approve what they saw, and that was part of the deal. You know, she couldn't just uh, outright take this and and run with it without their approval, which you know I thought was a good idea, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, that was the challenge, yeah. getting it all to and work. You, and you said you know you started this about six years ago, um, so all those hours of footage got distilled down. And how long does the movie run? The final version. Well, that's a great question because, you know, and I'm learning as I go along uh, in this business, you know, what, what they have to do, depending on what where they want this film to end up. Um, the film festival aired an 88-minute uh, version, which was was fantastic. I thought it was very, very moving, very dramatic. I mean, being in a, in a, in a uh, theater with uh, 400 and 50 some odd people in a packed house, you know, and you see your face up there and you're thinking, gee, what do these people think of of what, what I've done and what, what others uh, in my field are doing? And, you're, you know, you're hoping that that they'll like what they see, you know, and, and not being a paid actor in a sense, it really didn't didn't matter to me as much. But on the other hand, you know, we were doing this for a, a much bigger reason, and it was to give people an awareness of of what police officers and volunteers do in this field and how much they sacrifice and how human they are. So, uh, you know, those are some of the, the things and the concerns that, that went through my mind. Mm-hmm. And would you do it again? Ah, uh, 
<laughs> would I do it again? I, that's a great question. I haven't really thought that one through. I, I suppose, in a sense, no, because you know I wouldn't want those situations that I went through in order to uh, make this film a reality happen. I mean, people died. You know, uh, people went missing. You know, people were in, in very distressful situations. And, you know, of course, I'm sure no one would wish that to happen again in order to make a film. But on the other hand, I'm glad I had this one opportunity to do it. Uh, it came really at the latter part of my career as things were winding down. Uh, and I had given the reins over to a lot of younger troopers to go on most of the of the calls. But uh, she caught, um, she did catch some, some great stuff that I think kept the audience pretty riveted. And, and it's not only, it's not a, a, a police drama film by any means. This is more of the inside story where you're taking, uh, it, it, in this film's case, you know, some of these dogs were, were rescues from the pound. Some of these dogs were going to be put down for sure. And, you know, I tried to make it work. You know, because I'm used to dealing with no budget. I'm used to not having uh, the department uh, have any money from, to buy me uh, high-end dogs from top breeders or imports from Germany uh, because they're search and rescue dogs, and the liability for what we do is less than than a police uh, patrol dog. So, uh, you know, I can just go to a pound and get another one is the thought process if the dog doesn't work out. And I have more time to train than some of the other uh, police dogs who are on more of a strict schedule. A dog has to be produced in 14 weeks, and if the dog doesn't make it, we don't have time to go to a kennel and get another one. This means a police handler is going to be off off the street without a dog, and that's not good uh, because we need these dogs on the street. With the search dogs, you know, because we're not going out every day on call-outs, um, you know, we may get several a month. Some months you don't get any. Some months you get you're out every week. It all depends. So we had a little more leeway, and I could afford to go to a pound or a shelter, or really screen a dog that was in trouble, and see if I could turn this dog around. And so that was really part of the story. And the other part of the story was really what the handlers go through. You know, what what their emotions are, what they're thinking, uh, what their uh, their they're experiencing, you know, in because they they would go, some of the the film cuts away from my story and goes uh, into the lives of some of the other handlers and where they went after they finished my class with their dogs, you know, what they what they achieved with their dogs and some of the cases they won, and they were from different states. Some of these handlers were from Maine Warden Service, uh, the Maine State Police at the at the time that she was filming, uh, that was the class, those are some of the people I was teaching. Other troopers from Rhode Island, she followed them and their dogs. So it was really great, and it, it cuts back to the main story, which involves me, but then it, it branches off again. So it's really, it's not one of these shoot 'em up drama types, you know, that you're used to seeing on, on TV. You know, this is really a unique um, story about, you know, humans, and how humans are trying to help other humans with a, with a technology that cannot be matched with anything we can do with computers. It's a technology that Mother Nature has provided us uh, as in the form of dog, and that's what makes it so wonderful. So, of course, now that I've listened to you and talked to you and, and uh, kind of watched on Facebook the progress of this movie, 
I'd like to go see it, and I'm sure some of the, my audience would like to watch the movie. So how can um, people watch Search Dog or find out when it's going to be playing near them? Right, and that's a great question. Um, and, you know, what I'm told is that they're trying, they meaning the, the film producers, trying not to overexpose the film. Um, we don't know exactly when it will be available to the public because it now that the film festival is over, and by the way, the film won, won an award. It was one of 28 films out of somewhere around 190, I think, that won Best in Festival, and as a result, it aired uh, at least two more times out there after I left. Well, congratulations. It packed the house every time. It was wonderful, yeah, but, but what they're looking to do is is get a distributor. Mm-hmm. And in this business that I don't pretend to even understand, uh, what I'm told is that if a distributor picks the film up, then it'll be more accessible uh, quicker than you know the producer or me trying to rent out a place mm-hmm. and and have you know people come in to watch the film locally so they want they're trying to get they want the film to be uh, on uh in theaters or perhaps netflix or you know uh television in some form and we no one knows when that if if that's going to happen anytime soon but i know they're working on it you know i know that the producer and and some of the folks that she's recruited to help her, you know, in that arena are doing the best they can to uh, to get it out there. So whatever it takes. I mean, I, you know, as I said, it was I did it as part of my job. There's, you know, there is no monetary gain for me. Uh, you know, know what I want it because uh, that's not why I, I do it. And uh, so I'm not in, I'm not so concerned. I just want people to see it. You know how it gets so seen. Um, and how soon it gets seen, you know, are my concerns. But, you know, I'm not involved in any other aspect we've just gotta of be, that. We've just got to be patient and uh, eventually... You just have to be patient. It. You know, it, it's going to be well worth it. I can I can, I can, can tell you that because, you know, you know, having gone through it, I didn't quite see it from a point of view of those that have never seen this type of work that we do uh, or seen the inside story of how it's done. And it, I was amazed at the response from the from the audience. Uh, the two times that I, I attended the, the Q&As afterwards uh, and the films that I sat in while I was in Palm Springs were, were absolutely electrifying. And then the, the twice more that it aired when I left, I heard it was still uh, highly and very, very well received. So, you know, uh, I think here in East Coast, where, I'm, where I live, um, you know, where there's a lot of support for this type of work, and I'm sure that people here will appreciate it just as much. Okay, and you touched a little bit about shelter dogs um, and how some of your dogs came from shelters. How did you get started um, rescuing shelter dogs? Well, uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, it really stemmed from my first dog that I uh, that I had Andy Redman, went to Andy Redman for to train. Uh, that, although he wasn't a shelter dog, it was sort of a rescue mission in, in a sense because, you know, he was a pet that I had owned before I became a state trooper. So when I bought him, when I bought my Swiss Mountain dog, you know, he wasn't supposed to be a search and rescue dog. He was supposed to be just a laid-back partner that went around with me 
uh, I was a plumber's apprentice and I'd go around and do jobs and, and he'd come with me and just hang out, you know? So he was very low key, very mellow. Um, and that's why I bought him. That's why, why I, the breeder picked him just for that purpose. So now here I was, uh, with, uh, one year on the job trying to make the only dog I had access to, uh, a search and rescue dog. It was really a challenge. So it, in a sense, it kind of made me appreciate being the underdog. Uh, so to speak, you know, being a guy who who didn't choose the easy route, you know, I could have I could have take five seven thousand dollars whatever it costs and try to buy a real high end dog, and you know go to Andy Redman with this crack dog and have him train it with ease, but that wasn't the case. I didn't have the money and I didn't have the knowledge or the insight. Uh, and I said, gee whiz, I can't have another dog in the house. This guy's big enough. I was renting a place at the time. You know, I didn't have the room. I had roommates. <laughs> so this, this just, and the timing just seemed like this had to work. Um, I was just, it was so motivated. Uh, you know, there was a tragic, uh, it was a tragic incident that happened on the job, uh, with a, uh, a, a family was murdered, uh, by a family friend, a mother, father, and a, and a, a nine-year-old daughter. Were brutally murdered, and that was in early in 1992. And with combined with my desire to want to get a program started, and that that murder uh, really sparked me to start without without any more any more waiting. And that that really was the murder was uh, was this type of situation where after these these this family was murdered, they were the bodies were buried. Uh, not far from where they lived, but they weren't. The bodies weren't found for many weeks, uh, and they had dogs of different types of disciplines come in. Not specifically uh, body dogs, as they were called when I first started, or cadaver dogs, or human remain detection dogs, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, these dogs came in. They did. They did what they had to do, but they didn't come up with these bodies. And it was a woman walking her pet through a field one day, through a wooded area that noticed the dog digging at the ground and noticed the white chalky substance uh, that was suspicious to her because they knew they had been looking in that area previously. And so when, when she notified the police and they checked it out, sure enough, that was Lyme, and uh, they located the bodies. It was at that point I decided, you know, I was working up in that area. I was not directly involved in the case, but I was part of a group of, you know, thousands of Rhode Islanders that were hoping this this at least a child would be found alive, but in the end, nobody was. And I said, that's it. We're going to have our own dogs if I have to train my own. And um, and the process began, you know, the process began. And that's that was uh, all part of the timing for me. So, the, you know, you've rescued these shelter dogs for yourself, but um, have you helped other people or agencies find dogs through the animal shelters? Yes, well, as time went on and, and I went from my first dog to my next dog to my next dog, you know, uh, the, 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 I wasn't getting any more money. So uh, I thought, she was, you know, why why buy a high-end dog when I when I can take a shelter dog and train a dog to do the same thing? And I have nothing against, um, you know, dogs that are bred specifically for this type of work. I mean, they certainly can make it make a trainer's job a whole lot easier. But I thought, you know, part of being, um, part of, you know, practicing the love for animals that I have and wanting to help shelter dogs, um, 
And it goes back to my childhood when I worked when I worked at the Providence Animal Shelter as a volunteer, helping out, you know, wanting to get to get uh, to improve a dog's life for the, whatever time they had left. You know, I thought it wouldn't be great to start training shelter dogs if I if I can find them. And I mean, you know, the odds are against you when you go in there uh, because you're so it can be such an emotional experience. You want to save them all, uh, but very few you know, we're going to meet that criteria that you need. And, you know, I began uh, I began fight, uh, helping others that had shelter dogs, you know, uh, on my own time, working with dogs that they had, people had rescued and working with them, making turning them into search and rescue dogs. And then when the opportunity for me came up uh, to attain a shelter dog i was looking for one for the vietnam mission actually because um, one of my dogs that i was preparing to take suddenly came down with cancer so um after he died i needed to find another dog pretty quickly and someone had told me there was a german shepherd at a local shelter that might uh, be the dog for me and after checking that dog out uh, he ended up uh, being just that, you know, he, they thought he was aggressive and he was uh, not good with children, and he was only six months old. We took him out, we tested him. Uh, you know, I thought he had some promise. I took him home, worked with him, and sure enough, he became one of the best cadaver dogs and search and rescue dogs I ever had. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your mission to Vietnam. Did you say it was back in two thousand and three? Right. The uh the mission to Vietnam was uh, was it was one of a kind actually as far as using dogs were concerned. It was a situation where the uh of course it was after 9/11 and there were a lot of people uh asking the military why dogs weren't being used uh to look for human remains in in Vietnam uh, or any any other part of the world for that matter, you know, to help look for their loved ones that had never returned home. And they were actively uh, looking for missing Americans in Vietnam you know, on a regular basis. And the military and the anthropology community decided, well, let's let's look into this and see if, if dogs would be of some use to us out there. They were really concerned about the heat and the terrain uh, because it was very unforgiving, to say the least, out there. But um, their search for a dog handler... Uh, led to me for some reason, and you know, I it was a it was a process. You know, they had to get the state police on board. You know, why do you want to take you know our trooper away for two months and uh, go look for remains in Vietnam when you know we need him here? <laughs> he has a, he has a job to do here in Rhode Island. You know, um, but you know they made a good case. Uh, they sent the representative over from Hawaii, and you know he. Stated, you know, we we like the fact that he has military experience as well. I'm a former Marine as well, uh, and um, you know, he has a thank God he has a, a good track record. And we like the fact that he's got he handles two dogs, and you know, there were just a number of factors. I think that uh, I'm sure Andy Redman had something to do with it. You know, I think they had had consulted him as well, and uh, that he had given me a good uh, a good resume and so um the state police said okay you know we'll we'll send them and he'll be yours you know you own him for a couple of months so 
like literally, they literally, they literally embed you with the military. Though you train with them, you know, you you do PT, you know, physical training. You go through all the all these these courses on you know different diseases and hazmats, and you have to worry about exploded ordinances, and they've got to sweep areas that you're going to search before you put the dogs in there, and lots of precautions, lots of training in advance before the mission even started. So it sounds like quite a logistical challenge. Well, well, it was. It had never been. It had never been attempted before, which was something that I found very interesting. Uh, the, the United States government had had never used uh, trained cadaver dogs to look for remains in Vietnam. Um, and I don't, for that matter, I don't know if they if it had been done anywhere else either at, at that point in time. And so I had no model to follow. I had no one I could call to ask and say, hey. What was it like over there? You know, how did the dogs make out? Uh, and it was the middle of the winter here, trying to train to prepare for, you know, 105 degree heat in the shade and 100% humidity and, uh, uh, you know, triple canopy jungle. But the military was very accommodating and it was a it was a once in a lifetime experience. And I wasn't going to to turn that down because it was just a part of uh, a part of my patriotic duty, I felt to, if I have this opportunity, to go and do the best I can for them. So did you have any success? Well, we did, luckily. Um, we went on 12 different cases while we were out there. And, you know, these cases were cases that had been previously dug by anthropologists following with witness information and trying to locate uh some in some cases mass graves of what may be you know a number of soldiers or marines in other cases just isolated graves other cases just simply were missing uh an american in this area because this is where a battle took place but we don't know what happened you know we don't have actual grave we don't have uh we don't really know if he was killed or not he's just missing from this area so you know, some of them were clearly speculative and maybe even never even uh, uh, held the remains of, of an American. But in many of the other cases, the information was better, and there was a, a much better chance. And it just happened that our first case being was a uh, an F-5 Freedom Fighter was shot down in southern Vietnam in 1960. And... Um, uh, that case we searched with our dogs, and the anthropologists had an area they wanted to, to search they were concerned with, uh, and yes, we ran the dogs over them, and yes, the dogs indicated, but that was not really a surprise to the anthropologists because they had they had been digging in this in that general location before, but the witness had said the remains had been dug up by animals and had been uh, dragged off several times, reburied, dragged off again, so... Uh, while they uh, excavated that area, I went off and profiled another area in the jungle that thinking if the plane had come down in Area X and remains were buried in Hawaii, then maybe Area Z here would be a good area. And it was just using my intuition. And we did a search, and sure enough, both dogs at different times indicated in the same general area about 10 meters. And there was nothing to see. I mean, the, the jungle had succumb any any evidence of a plane crash and 
there was not a shred of metal left. Uh, the villages had used everything up, you know, in one form or another uh, to recycle. And so uh, I reported the the information to the anthropologists at the scene. They came, they looked at it, and they said, sure, we'll, we will uh, excavate this. And 30 days later, I run into uh, one of the anthropologists in um, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, we were actually getting ready to, to pack up. We had done all the other cases, and I didn't hear any in- information from any of the others, including this one, until that day. And he had said that they had found what they believed were human remains at that site just several inches down from the surface, which made sense because these remains were scattered, they weren't actually buried in that if they were in that location, seeing that they had been dug up. And it was just over a period of time of erosion and 38 years that covered them over shallowly. And uh, it, these remains had to be sent back to to Hawaii to be uh, tested through, through mitochondrial DNA. And then it was several years later, actually, before I found out that, that the remains were actually uh, identified as... Um, those of David Phillips, shot down in 1966, I believe. So that was the first time I had heard anything. Uh, And the last, I never heard of any other sites that produced any any remains. But truth is, I wouldn't have heard of that case either had I not made a phone call. It had been several years at least. Um, I decided I was moving my office uh, from where I was stationed to another barracks and I was cleaning up some paperwork and I said, gee, I need to follow up on this to see if anything was, was found. And I made a call down to Hawaii and I spoke with uh, someone that remembered me and he looked up the case and gave me all the information. And he said, absolutely, uh, David J. Phillips Jr. was uh, was positively identified and his remains were, were re- returned to his family. So, you know, he didn't have any information on any of the other cases, at least not at that time, that he could share with me. So, you know, maybe nothing was found. Um, who knows? But it only took that one case to, you know, to prove that the dogs were useful and were effective. Because that one in particular, where no one actually said, go look here. You know, no one said, we think the remains are here. You know, that was the great thing about it. We just went off. We did our own thing. And totally trusting the dogs, uh, we located an area that later produced remains. I mean, how much more authentic can it get when you're depending on on an animal? There was literally no human uh, intervention whatsoever to uh, help us with that case, other than them digging it up. Because they actually are the ones that actually found it, you know. We found the area, they found the remains. But... It was an area that no one had expected anything to be in. That was the that was the amazing thing about that case. So it sounds like a very gratifying experience. Um, and you've been doing this a long time. Are there any other particular cases that stand out as especially satisfying or gratifying? Well, there were there were many cases, Eva. You know, it's it's difficult to you know pit one against the other. But uh, there is a case that is is uh, featured in the film and I I'd like I don't want to spoil it I think that you know it's it's very heart-wrenching but uh it's a wonderful story it's beautiful in terms of 
uh, a child that goes missing, and she'd been missing 14 years. Uh, and you know, to make a long story short, the dogs do find her and her remains. And the amazing thing is, you get to talk, you get to see the lead investigator uh, of the case talk about it, and you know, you see how he had struggled, you know, for all those years to try to put this case together. It involved a very, a very uh, notorious but brutal killer who the film, the director and the producer choose not to even mention that per- that person's name so it's not to give him any glory because he's, he's in prison but he's still alive. So, you know, we didn't even want to give him the satisfaction being mentioned. But um, the, there was that case and, you know, there were there were many others. Uh, there was a plane crash I had going on uh, in the middle of the ocean where a small plane with two people went down in 42 feet of water and they weren't they were not able to find this plane or the or one of the bodies for 5 days and um after a a search we were on the water maybe 40 minutes uh and the dog indicated we dropped the buoy in the water and divers came and were able to quickly locate the plane and the pilot strapped to the cockpit of the plane, not going anywhere, still under the water. Those was, some, yeah, those are some pretty amazing stories. There's a whole bunch. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I've had 25 years of, uh, 24 of those 25 years of going on cases, not only in Rhode Island, but in all uh, in p- other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And we've also helped uh, on cases in Bolivia, uh, Colombia, South America, during the drug it was in 1995 um, when Colombia was the uh, was the largest drug cartel, the Cali cartel at that time. Uh, you know, we were going there looking for, working with the FBI, looking for uh, missing Americans uh, or missing, I shouldn't say Americans, but missing people. Um, uh, Bolivia was for a missing American who worked for the Peace Corps. And who allegedly, who had, uh, assumably fell off the mountain, one of the mountains in La Paz. Um, but there were there were many other cases, and um, difficult to say. They were all they were all hard, uh, and and most of them, you know, where we had success in finding someone, were never never done without good investigative police work. You know that always helped. Uh, me succeed you know there were very very few i went out there and just the dogs just just did it you know there were so many things working against you you know the unknowns uh you know the the terrain the amount of area and the that you have to cover versus just a short amount of time that you have available to to actually make make the search happen and succeed um so, you know, good investigative police work would help helping narrow the area down, detectives doing their job, and, and us in the canine world doing our job, you know, bringing all these cases to fruition is really what happens. But I've had a number of buried body cases uh, where bodies were, one case, body buried 10 years in the ground. Um, we were able to locate that, that area, and um, detectives were able to find the skeletal remains. I mean, it goes on. And uh, I'm sure there are others out there that have had, you know, the equal or even greater success. But you don't hear about them because they, you know, they they do the right thing. They 
They're quietly going through their lives with their dogs, doing the right thing for law enforcement or helping out as volunteers or maybe as uh, public service workers and just, you know, having the satisfaction of being being available and getting the call outs and doing their job. And that's what's most important. So somebody's just beginning to work, you know, as a canine search and rescue handler, do you have any words of advice for them? Uh, if you really want to get into this and and do it from the heart, get ready for a wild ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many highs, but there can be just as many lows. And I don't mean lows in terms of not succeeding, but lows in, in actually succeeding, but having to deal with the situation. You know, as as dog handlers, as you know, um, and as most of us know who've done this, it's it's never cut and dry. You don't just go to a scene, uh, cut your dog loose, make a fine, and walk out of there brushing the dust off saying, job done. It's never, never that easy. Uh, the human element of uh, knowing with the information and profiling where you think the search is, is best done, um, knowing... Um, or having to know your dog's body language inside and out, working against the elements, working against the negativity. There's always, always someone somewhere nearby that thinks this is a big show and that uh, they should be doing something else and not giving the dog teams enough time uh, to get to the scene to do what they have to do. And once they're not giving them you know, full cooperation and allowing them an area with full access without getting other assets involved at the same time causing confusion and distraction. Um, it's difficult to have all the right pieces in place, and dog handlers are going to have to get used to that. You have to work through that because everyone's trying to help. Everyone's trying to utilize uh, multiple resources at the same time. They're not just going to to give you the spotlight and wait patiently while you do your thing for a day. So you've got to get used to the fact that you're not always going to be the first team called out. Um, you may not always have the information you want at the time you want it. Uh, but if you go there when you're called, do as you're asked and do the best you can and speak through action, not through words. Uh, because as I say, you're only as good as your next search then you're the person that will be called again and again to help. With well, thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Okay, so now I'm going to hit the button that ends the recording part of things. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.